to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. Today I have a guest. It's one of the guests that I, it's just the random, I just reach out via email and just hope for the best because someone who I've been introduced to through reading or writing and uh, this that happened this time. And I'm excited that he said yes. So with me today is Dr. Paul Miller. Dr. Miller, thanks so much for joining us. Aaron, thank you for having me on the show. I'm excited about our conversation. I first was introduced to you because I saw an email that came to my inbox about an interview that you did with the National Association of Evangelicals talking about Christian nationalism. And so I thought, hey, we're in the right year for this conversation. I mean, I think the conversation should be happening a lot more, but particularly so this year, we're going to see a lot of that. So I'm I'm so thankful that you are here to talk about that. Let me just introduce you real quick to my listeners for my listeners, Dr. Miller is a political theorist and a political scientist focusing on international affairs, the American experiment, and America's role in the world. He is a professor of the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, where he also serves as co-chair of the Global Politics and Security Concentration in the MSFS program. He's also a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's, I'm, I, I probably need your help saying it, but it's the Scowcroft Center, is that right? There you go. You got, got it. it. For strategy and security. And then his bio, he's done way too much, but let me just tell you a couple of books. He wrote, recently wrote The Religion of American Culture, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism in 2022. He's also written Just War and Order Liberty in 2021 and American Power and Liberal Order in 2016. Um, Dr. Miller, fascinating the work that you do. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to our guest, anything else that might be of interest to him? Yeah. So again, thank you for having me on the show. And I, I look forward to this conversation. Relevant to this book, I'll share, I'm a Christian. My wife and I are members at a local Southern Baptist church. I've been going to churches my whole life. Um, been married for 20 years in just another month or two. Wow, and congrats. I have, thank you. I have uh, three kids. Um, and uh, this book came about, you know, for my bias, most of what I do is international affairs. Uh, and I had a career in the government working on national security affairs. But around about 2015, I looked around and there was a large part of my own country that I did not recognize or understand anymore. Mm. You know, I grew up on the right. You know, I grew up in the Republican Party and voted for Republicans at every level in every office all the time. And 2015, 2016 rolls around and I kind of didn't recognize my my tribe, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. They, they, you know, it's like the people around me were processing uh, Donald Trump's candidacy in a way that I wasn't. Uh, I was just having the exact opposite reaction. And I thought it was obvious and they thought it was obvious. And so I like, right. why is there such a mismatch? So I spent a half a decade reading and writing and it just goes way beyond Trump. You know, this was, that was kind of, sort of the triggering cause, but it, it caused me to re-examine a lot of things about American history, American identity and political conservatism and, the, and, and nationalism is actually what it is. It's not conservatism. And so uh, that's the origin of the book, uh, and it um, and the book isn't really about Trump. I got one chapter in there about Trump, but it's really about this broader phenomenon of Christian nationalism that's been here for long, long, long before Trump, and it will long outlast the guy as well. Yeah. And that's that's the bigger challenge more than this one uh, president. Um, 
So they're there. Almost up there. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate you starting off that way. Cause actually, you know, one of my first questions was going to be, you know, do you hate Christians? Right. When we, when you have these kind of book titles, I think part of the first assumption that some people have, I mean, I didn't have it, but you've probably heard it. A lot of people have said it. Like if you're going to say there's a problem with Christian nationalism, you must hate Christians. You must not be a Christian, yeah. but, but and, and there's, it's clear. there's a lot of, there's a lot of books out there like that. You know, there's a book out there. I think the title is Christo fascists. Uh, and there's another one by a New York times reporter that, that, that is all about how our entire movement is uh, creeping theocrats and totalitarians. And, and so I've thought we need a critique of Christian nationalism from within Mm. Uh, because that's the voice I hope we can trust. Uh, you can't trust the critiques from the other side because they're just, they don't understand. They don't get it. They, yeah. they, they see a totalitarian under every rock, a theocrat under every Bible verse. And that's just not true, but I'm still worried about Christian nationalism and the, yeah. and the, and the troubling illiberal tendencies, uh, within our tribe. So that, that answers a question that I had, especially learning that you're Southern Baptist, right? I mean, some prominent Southern Baptists in the past two years have left the fold, as it were. Uh, you know, I've been reading Russell Moore's book. Um, I know Beth Moore had her no relations there, right? But yeah. but she also left. But it's interesting to hear you say that you're talking about trying to work on this issue of Christian nationalism within just not even just the church in general, but also Southern Baptist, right? I mean, because yeah. clearly that is showing up there as well. Yeah, well, I'd say from within the tent of Orthodox Christianity, um, from yeah. within within uh, traditional or historic Christianity, um, and, and within the, well, perhaps I should say, within the tribe of the political right, although I would certainly not count myself a nationalist. Um, one small note, you highlighted, you know, especially Southern Baptists. There's maybe a bit of a myth here. Hmm. Southern Baptists are definitely... Uh, prone to be politically conservative and vote for Republicans, but not they're not the most enthusiastic embracers of Christian nationalism. Hmm. It, it turns out that the people who go to church regularly in any of the historic traditional denominations, whether it's Southern Baptist or Methodist or uh, or evangelical Lutheran, they they even if they vote Republican, it tends to be more transactional. Uh, yeah, we got the judges. We'll give them our vote again. Right. They're not the people rioting at the Capitol on January 6th, right? That actually tends to come from uh, charismatic, uh, Pentecostal, um, the, the new apostolic reformation, prosperity gospel. That's the sort of movement that is, uh, can wander into some heterodox directions that has also embraced very enthusiastically the, the Christian nationalism stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I can go into more detail there, but the, the great thing about historic denominations is we do have more theological bulwarks guarding us against some of the more obviously dangerous and heterodox notions out there. Yeah. No, it's interesting you say that because, I mean, you don't know me, but people of this podcast know I am Pentecostal, right? Um, <clears throat> Pentecostal and an Anglican priest at the same time. So there's kind of a grew up Pentecostal, kind of made a liturgical turn. But it's interesting you say that because it is from the outset, you know, reading some of Moore's book or reading even Tim Alberta's most recent book, right? There can be that. We're just looking from the outside, but what I know of my own tribe is is quite there, especially the charismatic yeah. section, uh, because we have people. You know, I don't typically like to call it names, but I mean, this is just clear. I mean, they've they've made a reputation on this, right? Like 
like a pastor Nathan Finocchio, who doesn't just say Christian nationalism is good. It's you must be a Christian nationalist in order to be a Christian, not in order to, that's pretty strong, but it seems like it's coming off that strong. Right. Um, so no, I, I appreciate that insight. What maybe to start here, because we've kind of jumped already in deep, what, how do you define for my listeners? Cause the word is so broad. I think at this point, and a lot of people have thrown it around. How are you defining Christian nationalism when you use that term to review and understand both denominational groups and the Christian Orthodox Christian in general? Yeah. And that's kind of the whole ballgame is like getting a definition that people can agree on. And it depends on how you def- define it is whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, right. <laughs> so and I, in the book, I've got a very scholarly definition, very top down. I think there's a spectrum of Christian nationalism. It looks different on the, on the ground and the praxis of it. But if I'm going to give you a simple one-sentence answer, it's this. Christian nationalism is the belief that America is a Christian nation and the government ought to keep it that way. Hmm. If, if you believe America is a Christian nation and our government should keep it that way, that's Christian nationalism. Just the first half, if you're just saying America is a Christian nation, uh, you know, there's there, there are ways in which that is obviously true. If you mean... A supermajority of Americans profess Christianity. That's a true statement. Yeah, Christianity is Christianity is the most influential religion in our history. Obviously, that's true. Our founders were mostly professing Christians who believed that they were embodying Christian wisdom and formulating the principles of the Constitution and Declaration. On and on and on. That's that's all obviously true. But if you're making a statement of political philosophy that our government has a responsibility to keep and maintain and uphold and enforce a certain cultural religious template to define who we are as a people. That's Christian nationalism. And I think yeah. it is uh, bad theology. And I think it's also bad uh, political uh, philosophy. I, I think we're both there on it being bad theology. I think yeah. I think we can both agree. But it, it's funny because it, it doesn't necessarily seem very often like a theological argument, um, at least in the conversations that I've had regarding it. There seems to be something else kind of there because the theology just gets in the way of the argument. It's not a bolster to the argument in some ways, right? Unless we kind of go back to to ancient theism and and or not sorry theism, but ancient practices of of a of a god run society, right? Yeah. In these political systems. So, and, that, and that's that's because I think of uncareful biblical exegesis in evangelical mm-hmm. circles around political issues. Uh, you know, many Christians will read "Blessed um, uh, Righteousness Exalts a Nation, Sin Is a Reproach to Any People," which is in Proverbs twenty-four, and they mm-hmm. say, "And they say, great, we should govern righteously, which means Christians should be in charge." Like that's oh, right. the yeah. Im- immediate political application of this Bible verse, and that's just—it's bad exegesis, bad application. You need to do a lot more work to unpack. What does that verse mean, and how does it apply to us in the 21st century in a non-theocratic society? Also, I think that uh, generations of Christians have not been taught the political theology behind disestablishment and the First Amendment. The First Amendment, religious freedom, is a biblical doctrine before it is a constitutional doctrine, and I think most Christians are not aware of that. They're not aware that there's a theological reason why we Christians argue for and affirm the disestablishment of the church and religious freedom for all people. I've encountered this on many campus talks. I talk to young audiences and a lot of young Christians, particularly men, don't understand why we have a First Amendment. 
they, yeah. they, they think it's a secular imposition by a bunch of atheists and progressives. And that's simply not true. It was a Christian uh, gift uh, by Baptists, mostly, who understood the proper biblical understanding of the relationship between church and state, that Jesus created institutions with different jurisdictions, and we should uphold that. Yeah. Yeah, it is an interesting reality. I mean, you know, you point out a that charismatics and Pentecostals we're we're definitely at fault in some way and and in some way we are because we have had 130 years roughly talking about American Pentecostalism to try and come up with a theological structure and we grab some from here and we grab some from there and it's probably only been the past 30 or 40 years that there's been a sustained effort on Pentecostal theology that is distinct in its own space and its own characteristic and it's it's really interesting to note that we have had that issue. It's interesting to note kind of where that's coming from, but but to your point, it's because there is not a good reading of the text or there is not maybe a sustained reading of the text that is asking questions about what is this really saying versus how do I immediately apply this to my situation, right? And that's that immediacy becomes problematic in that way. And I think you even have, you have a chapter here in your book about nationalism in the Bible. And so in your research, kind of where did you see beyond this that we see kind of nationalism springing forth? Because that's, I, I don't know, I think that's a key, that that is a key, if not, I'm, I'm aggrandizing here, the key element for many Christians who like to say, well, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and so the Bible tells me this is how I should engage as a Christian within the political world. Are you asking how do nationalists misuse the Bible? Yeah. Well, no, I'm asking like what you found in your research, like what was so interesting, like what can help us in like coming back to a better, not just a better reading of scripture, but like what's what's the root problem there between nationalists and the Bible? What is the root problem? Well, there's a, there's a couple of related problems. One is the nationalists misuse the example of Old Testament Israel and the narrative of chosenness hmm. and um, and the and the texts that say things like, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And they just say, great, our nation, in order to be blessed by the Lord, needs to be under his lordship, and therefore we need to be a Christian nation. Like, again, there's that sort of immediate direct application of scripture in an, I think, inappropriate way. Um, yeah. So that would be one problem is this, that mis understanding of our relationship to Old Testament Israel. Uh, there's also, uh, this gets into the weeds just a little bit. There's a murkiness in when we encounter in the Bible, kingdoms, polities, peoples, families, tribes. Again, we tend to see ourselves as the new Israel. Actually, Americans said that quite yeah. explicitly for about 300 years, we're the right. new Israel. And today, the way of saying that is we're a Christian nation. But Israel was actually not, uh, there's, a, there's a few different Hebrew and Greek terms here. Israel was regularly called the essentially the family of God, the Am. Mm -hmm. And there was a different Hebrew word used for all the other nations, Goy. And the Old Testament does not actually present um, an, an, an imperative that Israel, the family, the Am, must become a nation a sovereign nation, a, a goy. It doesn't, that's not the point of the Bible. The point yeah. is we want to be the family of God. 
Well, today in 21st century America, we're a goy, right? We are a, a state. We're a, we're a pluralistic people, and that's fine. And there's no call for us to see ourselves as the family of God, as another am. And, and in fact, I think it's quite dangerous to confuse those two things. We are the family of God in our churches. The church is the Christian nation. The church yeah. is the family of God. The church is the new am of God, the new laos in the, in the New Testament Greek. Uh, and and I, and we should understand that identity within the church, and then our our secular political identities. Let's celebrate the fact that we're Americans and or or whatever we are, uh, but not confuse the two things. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. Um, so I, I think it feels like I'm jumping a bunch of questions to get to this question because I feel like we could ask a lot more, but I think up front it probably is better. What is the problem with Christian nationalism, mm. right? Like, because I can ask a bunch of, okay, where is it coming from? How do we, how do we kind of see it? How do we kind of understand it and its political identity and how people engage politically? But for the most part, the real question I think that people kind of scratch their head about or talk about is that well, what's wrong with it? Shouldn't we be? Why, why, why shouldn't we be Christian nationalists? And so, why shouldn't we be Christian nationalists? I, I, I have a hard time. There's so many reasons, <laughs> and it's hard to summarize. <laughs> I know them. it's a big question. Yeah, um, and I think I could put it in sort of three different buckets. Uh, bucket one is just at the level of political theory. All nationalism doesn't work very well. It's sort of an incoherent theory. How do you define the boundaries of a nation? Who gets to say what is who counts as a people? All that kind of stuff. Like, I, I just don't think nationalism really works for anybody, Christian nationalists or anybody else. But bucket number two is about the practical political effects of nationalism, which are always bad. And bucket number three is the theological implications. So mm. let me let me do bucket two and then and then three in sort of sequence. Yeah. I think when you try to do nationalism, because it doesn't work very well, you know, bucket number one, there's no rational or moral basis for saying this is who we are as a people and these are our boundaries. And so you kind of have to force it. You end up using coercion to create the sense of peoplehood that you, the nationalist, assert exists. Uh, to make it more simple, if the government says, this is who we are as a people, we are a Anglo-Protestant, a Judeo-Christian people, what you are also saying is, you're not one of us to, to everybody else, to everybody else who doesn't right. fit. And, and so you're having an official government-sponsored edict saying, here's a bunch of people, you don't belong. You're second-class citizens. You don't count as real Americans if you don't fit the particular cultural or religious template that we're holding up. And that's that's it's profoundly uncharitable. It's unloving, unwelcoming. But I also say it is illiberal. What I mean is it is not consistent with the tenets of the founding of the of yeah. our classical liberal founding. Um, but to treat people as a second-class citizen on the basis of their cultural identity. That's all just the practical political implication. And that's that can have a spectrum. It can be relatively benign, but still looking down your nose on people who don't fit, or mm. it can be outright genocidal, of course. You know, there's a wide yeah. spectrum here. But in wherever you fall on that spectrum, I disagree with it. I think it's illiberal. I think it's wrong. It's uncharitable, unwelcoming. As bad as that is, I think the bigger problem is bucket number three, which, which is the theological implications. Uh, uh, we, we've already talked about, you know, sort of church and state. I think it is a theological error. I think it is bad biblical exegesis is mishandling the word of God to try to do the things that Christian nationalists want to do. I think it is confusing 
the the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of God. It is treating mm. the church and the state as interchangeable. Um, it, it there is uh, an, a perfect record in history of governments using the authority of churches to bolster their secular political agenda, to use the church as a moral fig leaf to do whatever Caesar wants to do. Yeah. When when you marry church and state together, the, the Christian nationalists imagine that they will be in charge <laughs> and that and that the church will tell Caesar how it is. But there's a perfect record of Caesar getting the better of that deal. And Caesar always takes control and tells the churches what to do and what to preach. Look, the time in American history when we had the closest relationship between Christianity and the state overlaps perfectly with slavery and segregation. Hmm. And is it any wonder that the version of Christianity that gets taught in public schools is so convenient and comfortable for the white upper class? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, come on. That was when we were a Christian society, when we could overlook the rampant gross injustices against blacks and against Native Americans and against on and on and on. Um, so you got to be kidding me if you think that we were a more Christian people when there was a tighter relationship between church and state. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, you think about you think about theologians that are praised today, like Jonathan Edwards, who supported and argued theologically for slavery uh, in a time period where these great awakenings were happening, you know, quote unquote, great awakenings. And there's no effect towards slavery. There's no effect towards at least immediate effect towards the fixing of some of these problems. Yeah. Um, I, I think maybe you could say the second great awakening probably had an impact on abolitionism. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but, yeah. The but, second one, but first, you know, um, so that's our kind of issues with it. I mean, you clearly started seeing this in 2015, 2016 and started seeing kind of the rancor, as you mentioned earlier, that's coming with it. How are you seeing it now? I mean, we're, we're nearly eight years later in a political, in a, an election year, and we're already starting to see kind of that ramp up. What what are you seeing now that's saying, if we don't get a hold of this within the Christian church, we're in it for a bad for a bad time? Well, there are more ministries now that are trying to do the deliberate discipleship and formation on, on the basics of political theology, right? In other words, there's a stronger voice today trying to, um, again, do that long, slow work of discipleship and formation mm. than there was eight years ago. But it's a super, super long process. It, it's a generational process. Uh, again, as I share, I, I go out and talk on campuses, and I'm just glad I get to do that. Sometimes I'm a little alarmed by the kinds of questions I get from the audience, uh, from, the, from young Christians who are sincere, of good faith, open-hearted, but but wondering why we don't take over, why is there a First Amendment, and when can... I've actually heard the question several times, when is it time to pick up the guns and fight back? Mm, uh, and, yeah. and, and the answer is, we're nowhere close to that. I, I wrote an entire book right. on just war theory. I've studied civil wars and insurgencies around the world. We are nowhere close to being justified in taking up arms against our own government or against our political opponents on the other side. Uh, so that's the sort of questioning that I encounter out there. And it's a generational task to re-educate, to, to share again the, the political theology that um, is more in line with historic Christianity. Yeah. Now, 
you have a, a chapter, and, and I think it's a pertinent chapter to discuss a little bit, called Evangelicals and Donald Trump, right? And we've been having some more books kind of coming out in regards to, you know, I, I mentioned to you in our conversation before, and Tim Alberta's book, which just yeah. recently came out. And and we're seeing some interesting kind of things popping up again. Where do you feel like the state in your kind of political studies and then your church studies, where do you feel like the state of the church is? I mean, it's it's good to hear you say, it's hopeful to hear you say, there's more people doing the slow, deliberate work of discipleship than eight years ago in relation to this. But where do you feel like we've got to be careful within this next year, particularly as evangelicals in relation to what we had eight years ago? happening within our claims are allowing things that 20 years ago we wouldn't have allowed i say 20 you know 30 years ago we wouldn't have allowed as the evangelical church and now we're just accepting it in probably some kind of utilitarian fashion or pragmatic fashion right what are you seeing as you study this and you're even writing this book to kind of go here's where the state of evangelicalism is in politics today uh help me understand the question here what what are you hoping yeah, to... just where do you see, I mean, how do you see kind of evangelicals engaging within this political world right now? Like, is it different than it was eight years ago? Is it is it stronger in terms of Christian nationalism than it was? Like, are, are you, what are you seeing kind of within the political landscape as you've studied this? I guess I'd say um, the last every eight years have been clarifying. The, vo the prominent voices are more clear and more explicit on what we really stand for. Uh, you know, eight or 10 years ago, there's a whole bunch of people who all used the label evangelical and thought they all believed the same things. And now mm. eight, 10 years on, it's really quite distinct camps. But again, lots of people are still using the label evangelical to describe both camps. Uh, and, and so that could be confusing. But one camp is saying Christian nationalism, they're really, they've adopted, championed the label Christian nationalism. Yeah. And that's what they mean by the label. They think that that's what it means to be conservative. I, I think that's inaccurate. I think they're nationalists and they're using the label evangelical. Whereas um, there's, I guess, another camp, and I can't give you numbers here. I don't know how big this is. Oh, but right. The other yeah. camp you know, is, is people like Russell Moore who are, who are saying, no, actually, when we say the word evangelical, we're meaning in the, again, the historic sense that it, it meant for five centuries uh, since the Reformation, people who want to share the good news of Jesus Christ and love their neighbors. Uh, and we think that's consistent with the institutions of American democracy. And we pray for our leaders and all that. You know, it's it's like, it's the more old fashioned thing, but hey, score one for old fashionedness. Uh, I think this newfangled Christian nationalism is quite dangerous. So that's, I think, morally clarifying. Um, I do know uh, or, or suspect that the other camp, uh, the self-identified nationalists have a lot of money uh, and a mm. lot of institutional support. Victory has a thousand fathers, and the fact of winning the 2016 election um, instantly converted a lot of donors uh, to that way of thinking. And those donors have spent the last almost decade now funding a new set of institutions and publications and media outlets, things like Turning Point USA, right, and other think tanks and organizations, and again, media that have now uh, spread their message for 10 years. And so that's what I say is morally clarifying. It is more explicit what they stand for. And they've got mm. the money, they've got the momentum, they've got the energy. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I don't know that that will change until, uh, in, until, until there's electoral defeat and then cultural defeat. Yeah. So 
I, I think that's really interesting because I do, I, I, it is interesting to recognize how many of these kind of organizations are coming up and, you know, it's almost the, the thing that's been there for a while, kind of being exposed through this kind of, it's through the, through the money, through the donations, through the kind of organizations, you know, in some sense to kind of put it this way, it's not that it wasn't there. It's just that it was kind of hidden in the background and now all of a sudden it's coming to light and we can yeah. kind of talk about it more. So what do you think then, and, and this is just a, a question just from you, like your opinion, how should Christians engage within their political identities, with their political understandings within the within the state, if it's not the sense of the Christian nationalism of it's a Christian nation and the government must keep it Christian and we must work within the government to keep the government Christian, how, how, how do you say that Christians should engage politically? And faithfully yeah how then shall we vote right yeah <laughs> um how do we engage in politics the right way i mean there is one camp that says the answer is stop engaging in politics but mm. we should you know it's the benedict option it's uh it's uh, yoder it's harawas it's the withdraw retreat give up it's a sort of a pacifist quietist um and uh, i i reject that when God tells us to love our neighbors, that includes to love them politically, right? To work for conditions of justice, flourishing, and and law, and you know all that. That's that, so that requires us to be engaged. I think that the parable of the talents tells us not to waste what we've been given, and we've been given democratic citizenship, and it is important to actually use that as a tool of justice and peace and neighbor love. Uh, when God tells us to seek uh, the prosperity of the city into which we've been called exile. That means we've got to be engaged and actually seek that prosperity. It's an active thing we've got to do. So I reject quietism and pacifism. Um, there's an answer I can give you about the heart attitude. Right. There's an answer on practical voting strategies. On the heart attitude, I just challenge everyone to be mindful of your heart, your heart motives. Uh, are we out for Christian principle or Christian power. Mm. And it's very, very tempting to conflate the two and say, well, our principle requires power, and so we have to be in charge. Well, that's not always true. Right. I think religious freedom is a Christian principle. And sometimes true religious freedom will feel disadvantageous to us because it means we got to allow the mosque to be built next door, or we got to allow people to use the public library whom we disagree with, right? That's religious freedom and association and free speech altogether. Uh, so, so it will feel uncomfortable sometimes to truly work for a uh, Christian principle, not just Christian power. Hmm. Um, so you can only see your heart in community. So belong to a church, go to church, talk to people, talk about your political convictions and ideas and your, and feelings. Uh, and that I think can be a very beneficial way to invite accountability on your heart motives. Yeah. Voting strategies. How then shall we vote? <laughs> Look, I affirm that we ought to seek justice. We ought, and that's a Christian principle. We ought to seek justice and peace and the flourishing of our society. So, it, it, you know, righteousness exalts a nation. I affirm that. Well, let's let's pursue that. Th that doesn't mean theocracy, because uh, let me give you a kind of a threefold litmus test yeah. as we cast our votes. Um, number one is let's respect the jurisdictional boundaries that Jesus established for church and state. Uh, there's things the, the church exclusively should do, and there's things the state exclusively should do. 
Um, I don't like the idea of Caesar leading prayer. Uh, yeah. A lot, of, a, lot, a lot of Christians are like, hey, we got to be a Christian nation, so there should be prayer in public schools. I'm sorry, but I don't want a government employee leading a prayer and thereby teaching something yeah. about Jesus. That's a, You know what kind of theology they're going to teach? Right. The kind of, yeah, the kind of theology that's right. convenient to Caesar. It will be Caesar's theology. So no, he, fire him from that role. Caesar makes a terrible Sunday school teacher. Let's <laughs> jealously guard the prerogative of the church to be the exclusive voice of Jesus on earth. And so we got to keep the state out of things like publicly led prayers. I'm not a yeah. I'm not a fan of state enforced secularism. I'm not saying we can't have religious expression and display and voluntary prayers, but uh, but but state led prayers in public schools, no. So that was test number one: is is church state. Number two, let's remember that uh, equality under law is a Christian principle. When we vote our values. Let's be careful not to do it in a way that is prejudiced or disadvantageous to one group of people. Hmm. Uh, let's remember our history that 100 years ago, no, more than that, for, for most of American history up until about 1960 or 1970, Protestants believed that it was a Christian value to keep Catholics out of public life. That hmm. was a fervent Christian value that yeah. permeated and was unquestioned American principles for 350 years. Anti-Catholic prejudice was one of the most deeply ingrained right after anti-Black prejudice, right? And so we firmly believed it was a Christian value to keep Catholics out. So let's be careful today that we're not inadvertently doing something similar by keeping out this or that group in, through our Christian values. Yeah. Third and last litmus test. Let's be, let's have a humble appreciation for what the state can actually do. Uh, once again, good example, 100 years ago, Protestants got together and passed the 18th Amendment, banned alcohol, prohibition. And it was a spectacular mistake. That was a Christian value to <laughs> crack down on alcohol, to, to pass for temperance. And guess what it did? It had uh, it created gang warfare in American streets for 10 years. It incentivized the black market. It was a really, really bad idea. So we had to repeal it a couple of years later with another amendment. Today, I hear people say, pornography is evil, therefore ban porn. Hmm. And, I, and I have some questions. I, I agree. Pornography is evil. But I have some questions about your conclusion that we ought to, quote, ban porn. Can you tell me which government agency you trust to do that? Do you like the FBI? Do you want the FBI surveilling your laptop, your cell phone, every mm -hmm. electronic device yeah. in America? Do you trust the FBI? To, I don't. I worked for the government for 10 years. I have a very low estimate of what it can actually do. <laughs> and I have right. especially low estimate of the FBI. Uh, so let's let's be very humble and even skeptical of what our government can do. Just, you got to imagine for a moment, anything you want the government to do, imagine it's the DMV in charge of doing it. Uh, <laughs> right. And that ought to, yeah, that ought to right. like, humble our aspirations. Now, with pornography, what do we do about it? It's evil. It's terrible. And I'm telling you, it's impossible to criminalize the entire industry. Well, did you notice last year there was a, some state legislature who passed a really small law all it said was porn sites have to verify age before right. they let you in. And it shut down Pornhub in like 13 states. It, it was amazing how a tiny, practical, achievable law immediately mm. reduced the amount of porn in America and around the world even. And that I want all the Christian nationalists to pay attention to that principle. 
you're not Christianizing society. You're doing this one small achievable uh, incremental improvement to our laws that instantly make life better for all of us. Let's yeah. embrace the joys of incrementalism and stop talking about silly plans to re-Christianize, to resurrect Christendom. Let's just pass small achievable laws. Yeah, it's in some sense that's a, a maybe this differentiation is not necessarily correct, but it's differentiation between trying to pass massive moral laws to tell people how they morally should live versus laws that are protecting of groups of people who are sensitive groups of people, such yeah. as those who are underage who shouldn't have access to yeah. things that can mess with their minds and mess with their their sexuality, such as porn, right? Um, and and protecting that group versus just saying it should all be wrong, it should all be illegal, we should all we should all criminalize it tomorrow. It feels to me like any time that we've ever tried to say, let's just criminalize this whole thing, it's always failed. Yep. I can't really think of too many times other than our major things like, hey, let's not murder people, right? Other than some of these, yep. it feels like those don't necessarily work in the Christian's favor in the long run. We tend I mean, to end up hurting ourselves more. It, it literally took a civil war and a million deaths to pass the 13th Amendment. And and that was a case where it was justified for all the reasons. But that's the depth and the stakes that have to happen before you are able to do a sweeping... Look, everybody wants to be Abraham Lincoln in 1865. And hmm. no one wants to be Abraham Lincoln in 1862, right? Right. The, the guy was not an abolitionist. He didn't start out that way. He was very gradualist uh, and... and shaped events so that eventually we could get to the 13th Amendment, but only after a catastrophe. Um, so today, it's amazing to me how politically tone-deaf and inept the pro-life movement has been. It was utterly obvious to me after Dobbs, we were not going to ban abortion nationwide. And yet the pro-life advocates somehow thought we lived in a different country. Have you read a public opinion poll? America doesn't support that. What Dobbs did was give us an opportunity, state by state, to pass more restrictions and make abortion more rare, harder to get, uh, less frequent. And those would all be really good things if you embrace the incrementalism and pass small laws that democratic majorities can support. But the pro-life movement, and I'm very pro-life, I want to live in a country where there's no abortion, but that's not America in 2024. And so the pro-life movement just dramatically misread the, uh, the situation and as a result has provoked a pro-choice reaction. That's what right. this grand schemes do. It provokes the reaction. So uh, pardon me, I'm getting all riled up here, but it's- No, it's, no, I, yeah. I I like the riled up because it's, it's you know, I'm in Ohio, right? And Ohio, a very conservative, very politically Republican votes, Republican more often than not other than your mate. It's the same with most states, right? The major city yeah. hubs are more liberal uh, or progressive. But, and, but, and yet- we, we as the state of Ohio, voted to actually protect abortion rights because of the backlash against what happened last year yeah. versus saying, how do we actually do this in ways that yeah. people can get on board with, yeah. to your point, to an incrementalism. Why do you feel like it is, I mean, maybe this answer is too obvious to even ask, but why do you feel like it is that, especially with Christians, we're so against this incrementalism of like, how do we do this in small ways to protect people versus let's just throw it all out? I mean, there's like a, there's a whole John Calvin, you know, prose and history of this kind of thing where he gets kicked out of Gen Geneva, right? Because yeah. he tries to make these large sweeping changes. Of course, then he gets back and that's a whole other part of the history too, but. 
Uh, well, wh why? Why do you see it as as such a struggle for us? Uh, there's a moral argument, and then there's a historical uh, ignorance. The, the moral argument. <laughs> I yeah. want both. Yeah. <laughs> the The moral argument is that if I vote to say abortion is illegal after 15 weeks, I've just voted to say abortion is legal up to 15 weeks, mm. and that and that feels wrong and immoral. It feels like a moral compromise to have voted that way. And people want to be absolute purists and say, no, I can't vote for that. I have to vote for only the 100% morally pure solution, right? Uh, and so people are letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, and that brings in the historically ignorant part. Pe people are forgetting that we live in a democracy where you have to have 51% of support for your laws. And they forget what actually had to happen to pass the good laws in the past. What did it actually take to pass the Civil Rights Act? What did it actually take to pass the 13th Amendment? Uh, it, it takes a lot of wheeling and dealing and political maneuvering, and it takes a lot of political savvy to get this stuff done. And, right. uh, and people have not learned the arts of, of doing that. We've forgotten the arts of democratic compromise, in part because the courts took over too much of American life, in part because the administrative state has dictated too much. We've lost opportunities to participate, and so we've forgotten those lessons. But now that we're getting it back, it's like we need to t spend a whole generation relearning what it's like to exercise democratic citizenship. Hmm. I mean, I guess there's a, a pretty big lesson, right, that we see happening in Congress right now with even just trying to pass a, a budget for a year. There is no democratic compromise, right? It's, it has to be this or it has to be this and that's it. And yeah. it's it's really tearing Congress apart in so many ways, at least what you know the media reflects. I'm not in Congress. I don't see it day to day. But, you know, this nothing is getting done. Bills aren't being passed. We're not actually doing anything because there's such a staunch requirement. It's either black or white, and we've lost that. How do we work together, right? Yeah, well, and you're touching on a much bigger issue, which is the uh, polarization in American life yeah. uh, and the politicization of everything in American life. And the, the, the reasons for that uh, are all kind of the collapse of the media, the rise of the internet, the fragmentation of the information environment, the big sort, the demographic sorting into like groups, uh, and the party primary system where people, only the ideologues vote in the primaries. And so they reward the most extreme uh, candidates and on and on and on and, and money in politics. Like there's all kinds of things that fed into this, which means there's no one solution. to any yeah. of this. There's no one silver bullet. Uh, it, this is again, a generational task to undo so much of the stuff that's happened over the last you know 40 years. Um, so if there's one thing I could say, is go take back your local party commission or committee or whatever it is. If you're a Republican, if you're a Democrat, go attend your local political party meeting and take it back because I think the people who run those things are the most ideologically extreme hmm. and they uh, are the ones who continue to reward the worst extremes on both sides and they're responding to uh, those incentives. So attend those meetings, tell those people that they're crazy and they're rooting America and try to try to take those, you know, gather your neighbors, go and uh, yeah. vote yourself into office in some sense and and uh, try to talk some sense into these parties and that. And then then you can begin the long, hard work of changing our electoral laws, undoing some of this damage done by the primary system, doing ranked choice voting, doing multi-member constituencies, all, all this kind of boring stuff. But it starts by getting involved and taking it back from the extremes.
maybe I'm weird, but I just don't find ranked choice voting as boring. I'm pretty excited by it, but I feel like I'm one of the few who gets excited by the idea of it. <clears throat> um, if you're involved, it should excite you because I think there's a lot of potential there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and I want to talk about ranked choice voting now, but I know that's not what people come to this <laughs> podcast for. They're not, they're not concerned. Um, so it sounds to me like kind of almost your advice, like if the church wants to actually do good within the political world, what we have to do is kind of come back to the space of yes, incrementalism of thinking about this as kind of small changes over the long term versus immediate massive changes today and then also be the people in the political party involved in political work, but doing so with graciousness and not staunchness. Is that a fair assessment? So I'd speak maybe to a couple different audiences. Um, to individuals, I'd say, keep an eye on your heart, be invite accountability, uh, do this in groups, and ask people you know, to check on you. Uh, as citizens, I'd say get involved at the local level, embrace incrementalism, um, and understand uh, why our constitution is the way it is, support the First Amendment, support the rule of law, uh, vote your values, but keep in mind those three things I mentioned. To the church, as, as the church, institutionally, I'd say um, disciple and form your people holistically, not just on soteriology, not yes, just right. you know, not just the doctrine mm -hmm. of justification over and over and over again. You have to form a disciple of people on the whole counsel of God's word, and there is there are some political implications to that. So you need to actually teach political theology, doctrine of civil government. It doesn't have to be a sermon series; it could be a Sunday school, right? I'm I'm probably going to be leading something like that at my local church here soon. Uh, do a Sunday school hour. Hey, an election year is a good year to do that. Uh, mm -hmm. There's um a ministry called Redeeming Babel that has just put out a curriculum called uh, The After Party, which is, is a resource for churches to do this kind of political discipleship. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, you could you could try that. That is, I think, what the church institutionally can do um, in a nonpartisan way. Uh, Redeeming Babel is nonpartisan. Not telling people, vote this way, vote that way, but helping them form the right heart attitude and the right theology so that when they go forth as citizens— they can do so with proper Christian wisdom and graciousness. I love those ideas. And, you know, I told you we're, we're moving to DC around the May time period. So hopefully your Sunday school starts after that and I can join uh, the Sunday school and learn from you in that way. Um, I think it, it, to your point and back to the kind of incrementalism back to some of those, you know, I feel like in the last few minutes that we have, you know, so much of the conversation on the church and politics ended up with this kind of like the the movement of the religious right and this like very conservative movement in the 70s and 80s that happened with the Falwells and the like. That we kind of prepped the church for the kind of voting reality to say, I vote for one thing and one thing only, right? Like a, a single issue voter and it's and it's on abortion. And to your point, it had to be a hundred percent or nothing. It had to be whoever was going to say that they were going to work to get rid of it or I'm out. How has that affected the church in the long run? And maybe we just discussed that a bit, but yeah. maybe just kind of like thinking about that 
because I, you know, I understand why people want to get rid of abortion. I'm myself in pro-life and this yeah. like womb to tomb mentality of pro-life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. how do we, how do we kind of see how that, how, or how have you seen how that's kind of messed up our, our ability for incrementalism maybe? So single issue voting is the crusadification of American politics. When you elevate one issue and say, this is the one paramount moral issue above all, and you must vote this way on this issue and hold it to be the highest issue that trumps all others, uh, you're engaging in, in a political crusade. And American history is replete with political crusades. Abolitionism was one of them. The civil rights movement was one of them. Prohibition was one of them. Anti-Catholicism was one of them. Right. In fact, in fact, the pro-slavery movement was also a political crusade, and they cited lots of Bible verses for it. So American history is just a history of kind of rival crusades, uh, and the anti-abortion movement uh, is one. And I think what's happening on the right is that anti-progressivism is becoming our, our political crusade of the moment where hmm. anything that smacks of progressivism is uniting the right and we're turning it into almost a religious test that you, you must oppose anything and everything on the left. Um, there are pros and cons to crusading. It is morally clarifying. It is a way to rally support uh, and it can be effective in mobilizing a lot of action. It usually distorts the issue and is not terribly nuanced. It can demonize the opponent it can be uncharitable and it can make political divisions worse, not better. And sometimes you pick the wrong crusade. And as I just listed off, some of these right. causes are just wrong. They're just, they're immoral. Um, my answer here might be a little counterintuitive. Uh, I, I, I've, I've embraced the need to be a single issue voter. And hmm. my single issue, my single issue is the constitution. Yeah. Um, yeah. Preserving a framework of ordered liberty and equality under law is the paramount concern. That is how I love my neighbor politically, and I invite all Christians to do the same. That framework, I'm an international affairs guy. I study countries all around the world, and I tell you, this is rare. You know, hmm. about yeah. half the world has now adopted some form of democracy, and that's great, but it's fragile, and societies are uh, falling, they're sliding backwards. There's a lot of democratic backsliding around the world, including in America preserving what we have. Democracies can die. It's not just because we are today doesn't mean we always will be. Right. So my single issue is preserving the constitution above all else. Your pro-life advocacy is meaningless unless there's a constitutional framework in which your voice matters, in which you can vote, have free speech, yeah. have the freedom of association, form right. political parties. If we lose that, it doesn't matter if you're pro-life because the dictator will simply say, well, yes or no to abortion. Right. If you, if you right. want a voice, preserve the Constitution. That's my single issue, and I think that that is the most pressing issue of our day. I, I I'm very appreciative of that because sometimes it can feel like you're crazy when you're thinking that this idea of of voting and voting in terms of people who are per, trying to preserve that Constitution can become a demonized thing when it's, well, you're not voting for the one thing that you yep. should be voting for. Yep. And, and I don't know, that's the long range thinking. I think that sometimes is missed or the nuance that's missed to kind of go, look, it doesn't matter at the end of the day, if, if you're to use this language and I'm not claiming this language about anyone, but if you have a benevolent dictator one day who just agrees to what you agree to. And so things seem to be okay. You've still set up 
your system for a, a dictator who's going to come in eventually and be exactly opposite of what you want and worse than you can ever imagine, yep. right? It's it's not even slippery slope because it's a, such a fallacy to have a slippery slope anyways. It's a system that is set up that allows for either or, yep. and eventually it's going to be the or, right? And, and, the, and the more uh, explicit advocates of Christian nationalism pretty openly say that that's what they want. They want a benevolent dictator. Uh, Stephen Wolf in his book on the case for Christian nationalism calls for theocratic Caesarism. He criticizes democracy. Um, and, and again, my question is, all right, in every, you know, pick up a book of history, any book of history at any time for any civilization, any era of history, and show me where monarchies or dictatorships can hand off power to a successor who carries on their policies and in, in, in an accountable way. And it, it doesn't happen. This is the one right. thing that democracy has solved that no other system of government has, the peaceful transfer of power. We might lose an election, but we can always fight the next one. But if yeah. you're going to invest all your hopes in a benevolent dictator, you got one shot. And, and then when that one benevolent dictator dies, who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> right. Right. It's it's. The rule of law is the rule of law when everyone follows it, not when it suits you for the time that you have it, right? Which which is why just the other day, Trump said that presidents must have total immunity, total immunity, right? Of course not. You know, if you want to create a benevolent dictator, then that, that's the way to go. Do it, you know, give give the pre every president, every future president immunity. Uh, I'm pretty sure that um, the right was not embracing that idea back in Bill Clinton's day. Uh, you know, and I think it's so, so important to hold all of our politicians accountable for the illegal things they do. And they do a lot of them. I wrote an article cataloging our governors, our senators, all the crimes they did. Think about Richard Nixon. You want to give him immunity? Uh, right. You know, our government is, you know, does some criminal things and we should hold him accountable. I think about if that was really true, then what he's saying is Biden can now do whatever he wants to his political <laughs> right. opponent and he has total immunity. I mean, the, the argument makes zero sense. Yeah particularly in any kind of historical sense of we tried to get away from a, no a monarchy that had total immunity. Yeah. And now we're arguing for it again. I mean, I think yeah. I would rather say, let's go back under the UK system. If that's the case, like, we'll, we'll sure. go back. Yeah. If we're, if we're good, I totally agree. If we're going to embrace a monarchy, let's go back to the crown. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to be respectful of your time. So Dr. Miller, thank you so much. This has been really helpful. I mean, I hope I hope it, it is a scary thing that this term of Christian nationalism, we didn't even get into talking about the difference of nationalism and patriotism and how we can be good Christians and yeah. support our country. But I think we both agree on that statement. It, pushing yeah. back against nationalism isn't saying we don't love America, right? Everything I said about being locally involved and taking back the parties, you should do that from a love of your country. I love my, I served my country for 10 years. I wore the uniform, served in Afghanistan. I think patriotism is a virtue. We should all be patriots. Uh, and and we need to take back the idea of patriotism from the nationalists. They like to claim that they've got a monopoly on the love of country. That's false. Out mm -hmm. of the love of country, we need to fight back. And yeah. so that's, that's maybe a helpful way to uh, to end. Um, and uh, yeah. I feel I like I need that to statement. sort of almost apologize to your uh, listeners. Uh, I care about this stuff passionately. And that's why I get worked up about this. I, I I hope people share the passion, and I'm not um, uh, obviously I'm not angry at you, Aaron. Uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, be angry. It's fine. I'll take it. It's okay. No, 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 no. I I, I appreciate your questions, and they're good questions, which is why it excites me so much. So I invite people to share that, and uh, perhaps we can get something done.
Yeah. And before you go, um, I know I talked about your books a little bit. How can people follow along with kind of what you're doing, your research, your writing? And, you know, if people are interested more in this topic, I know we've talked about the books. I'm sure they're everywhere books are sold, but any other way people can follow along with what yeah. you're doing? Well, please do uh, buy and read the book. It's on Amazon. It's an, um, The Religion of American Greatness, uh, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism. Uh, uh, you, you can Google me. I'm at Georgetown University. It's pretty easy to find. And Send me a note if you appreciated the book um, or if you have questions or want to challenge me on anything, I invite that. Um, I am on Twitter, uh, Paul D. Miller too. I've, I've not been tweeting much for the past year or so because it's so pointless, uh, but I, I will occasionally advertise a new piece of writing there. That's kind of all I ever do on Twitter anymore. So uh, sometimes I'll write an article and, and put it there. I think I only use my Twitter for yelling about Formula One stuff, which yeah. <laughs> is one thing I think I've used it for. So. Yeah. Uh, thank you again so much. It's been uh, delightful, eye-opening. Glad we could do it. And I hope to have you back sometime in the future, maybe even about that whole just war thing. I think that would be an interesting topic. So, Thank you, Ren. I appreciate it.